We're ready. We're ready. We're recording. We are. It's three batter rule, and we've really worked out a lot, including the bizarre baseball jersey that I'm wearing today. I don't know what the hat is that Mr. Eichenthal has on. Tom Griscom, you look natty, actually, professorial, as as if you've you've been to a university. Have you been teaching an online course today? Not today. Just a week ago. Well, it's time once again for episode nine of Three Better Rule. It's not really time once again. It's the one time for episode nine. But here you are, and here we are. Thank you for joining us. This is our almost weekly attempt to make sense of the worlds of baseball and politics, which seem to overlap over and over again as the world turns. This week brought news of maybe a turn in the realignment of minor league baseball, Uh, a not insignificant issue to those of us who live in the state of Tennessee, where there are nine minor league baseball franchises right now. Tom Griscom, it looks like the major leagues and the minor leagues now, perhaps in this post-pandemic environment, are getting closer to making some material changes that might change that number from nine to something smaller. We've talked about this before, and I can't think of an absolute worst time to take any team away from any city. I mean, if I was sitting here today knowing what's happened, that there's no baseball, unless you're in Korea, and we could talk about that. I sent you all a note about having seen baseball in Korea. It's kind of interesting. And they're playing. They're in their spring training right now. Uh, I never took I, you for a K-pop fan. This is <laughs> an important thing to know. I'm glad of this. Thank you. But if I'm trying to... You keep a fan base alive, active, wanting the sport to come back, uh, trying to build that relationship. I can't think of a worse time. If we if we think about politics that we've all been in, so I'm going to sit here and say, to heck with you, I'm just going to go off on a whole different tangent. But to sit here and say to about 40 communities around this country that I'm coming in and I'm going to take your baseball away from you. I've just made this decision. And uh, if you look at the Appalachian League, we all know this from living in this part of the country. Uh, they may have seen their last ball game last year. And I don't, you know, I mean, I might sit here and say, maybe we put this off for a year because what's important is to get back to the fans and share with them baseball. But there's this effort to go forward. That's fine. Probably like having Scott Boris, the the, the Jerry Maguire of baseball, show <laughs> me the money, who's come up with supposedly keeps down by the, the best plan to keep the game going. And you want to scratch your head and say, okay, it makes sense to me, I guess. But I, I mean, you, you just want to step back a little bit, Tom, and wonder who's advising them about, let's just wipe out 40 communities in America. Tell them you're not important. The, yeah, argument, well, has, the argument has been, David, that 
the quality of the playing fields is inconsistent. Sometimes there have been stadium concerns that have been voiced. Nashville spent almost $100 million on its minor league facility six or seven years ago. And and yet cities have made those investments, have they not? Uh, and, and that uh, does not seem to be carrying the day. Lots of cities have, Tom. And look, the... the you know, we, we spend a lot of time these days talking about the importance of data. So here's some data that's worth thinking about. At least if you look at the initial list that was put out late last year of the cities that were going to lose teams in the way that Tom Griscom talks about. Uh, sure, there are some places like Chattanooga that are relatively prosperous. One of the teams that was on the original list was actually the Staten Island Yankees. Generally speaking, I'm okay with any Yankees team going away, but that's another story. <laughs> that's right. But most of the the most of the places they don't develop that, players anyway, right? Right. The, the most of the places that we're talking about that are under the threat of losing their team are really some of the places that are going to be hardest hit. Uh, have been hardest hit by COVID-19, or about to be hardest hit, or will continue to be hardest hit by the post-COVID-19 depression. Uh, you know, if you looked at the initial 40 or so teams that were on the list, they're disproportionately places with really high poverty rates. They're disproportionately places that have lost population over the years. The trick of this is, well, I've just made two pretty strong arguments for why those should be precisely the places that you would think about uh, closing down baseball teams because of the market. But the reality is this is a gut punch to places that have already seen their fair share of gut punches before this year and are in the middle of perhaps the biggest gut punch we could think of right now. So it really goes back to what we've talked about over a number of episodes, which is how do you paint the picture for baseball being something that the American public wants to turn back to? Uh, after this current crisis is over and looking forward and, you know, eliminating clubs, eliminating leagues in the middle of all of this isn't the best way to, to earn the trust, earn the continuing love of, of the American public. And to the question of who would come up with such a plan, we know that the answer is the Houston Astros. <laughs> well, now the Red Sox may be close, David. Uh, they are probably lucky that the Astros got it first so they could sort of look like they got the wrist slap, but really pay the penalty for what they did. I just want to point out, David, that you are in 100 percent agreement with the National Review, which <laughs> uh, wrote this week that just as you said, this plan um, at least as it was originally rolled out with the 42 teams that were publicly disclosed as being on the chopping block, uh, disproportionately affects the smaller communities that have too often uh, been asked to come up with large sums of money, sometimes, frankly, more than they can afford, to build stadiums, to make improvements to fields. In the Appalachian League, for example, most, if not all, of the teams, I know all the teams in Tennessee play at parks that the cities have built. They're they're typically run by the city parks department. They are staffed almost wholly by volunteers. Volunteers keep the grounds and run the scoreboard and the public address system and sell the popcorn 
friend of mine loves going to the Bristol Pirates and and has for years because it is his chance to get close to baseball and to say, you know, I saw X when. And and if not that, just to see, frankly, you know, the the dreams that we're made of, you don't have to be a real sap like I am to be moved by the James Earl Jones speech in Field of Dreams. I watched it the other night just because I needed to torture myself. And it is about the connection between baseball and the history of this country. And uh, while people who aren't baseball fans, fortunately, aren't listening to this podcast, might disagree that baseball has become uh, a relic and something that's no longer really essential. They're the ones watching the Michael Jordan documentary, 10-part documentary on ESPN this, this week. I am not. But there is no denying that that connection is not just built in 60,000-seat Major League Stadium ballparks. In fact, I would argue that connection is never built in 60,000-seat Major League Baseball uh, ballparks. That connection is built in communities and Little League fields, stickball alleys, high school games, and most eloquently, in the minor league parks across this country. That's where you see the game played by guys who, frankly, are trying to play it the best way they know how because they're hungry. Well, and, and Tom, I'm not surprised that the National Review agrees with me. Uh, I think I was there first, but who's to, without, without quibble, who's to quibble or quarrel? But, but remember, it's when, a big tent, you and the National Review. Uh, that's right. Uh, you know, I, I've even agreed with William F. Buckley Jr. on occasion on certain issues. But uh, uh, but but you'll remember that when this announcement first came out within days, within days, you had about uh, about a, about 100 members of Congress across party lines coming out and saying, whoa, whoa, wait a minute when it comes to eliminating minor league teams across the country, because it it touches Democratic districts, it touches Republican districts. I mean, my gosh, you had some of the most member, conservative members of the House speaking out on this. And I think one of the most eloquent spokespeople around why this was a bad idea was a guy named Bernie Sanders. So talk about bipartisan agreement. So. I, I think the question, though, carries over to some of the to the governmental and even political debate that we've got right now about, you know, these places again, these places that sort of have come into the current economic downturn with lots of challenges facing them already. And, you know, what are we going to do about minor league baseball? You could expand that discussion to. What are we going to do about these places that may have had higher unemployment rates than the rest of the country to begin with and now are going to be looking at 20 or 30 percent unemployment? Yeah. Elizabethton, Tennessee, home of the Elizabethton Twins, where Joe Maurer of the Minnesota Twins began his career. Kent Herbeck began his career. Kirby Puckett began his career. Uh, a few Hall of Famers in there and Hall of Famers to come, maybe. And, and Tom Griscom, that little town in Carter County, Tennessee, uh, which, which has grown some in recent years, a little bit uh, the beneficiary of some suburban growth around Johnson City, but it is still 
a struggling community by any uh, definition um, uh, when you open the lens up economically spent seven figures on a new ball field at the demand really of the Minnesota twins and yep. not long ago. Right. 1.6 million. They said, well, you know, maybe we can do more high school games and have some tournaments. Uh, you know, we'll see. So, you referenced the movie Filled with Dreams. I shared with David right before Tom you jumped on that this week I read, reread uh, W.P. Kinsella's book, a novel, Shoeless Joe, which is what is the story that turned in that movie. I want to read one real quick section in there. It says, and I think of that ballpark, abandoned the last time I saw it. The fences collapsed, lying at eerie angles. The stands dark and weathered, occasionally visited on cool summer nights by voices from the past. And for some reason, I recall the question at the bottom of the form sent by the Baseball Hall of Fame to everyone who has ever played organized baseball. Quote, if you had to do it over again, would you play professional baseball? Close quote. The historian at Cooperstown said, he couldn't recall even one ex-player answering no to the question. I wonder if any other profession can say the same. That's what baseball's all about. Well, of course, lawyers could say the same, but without uh, exception, <laughs> without exception. Well, so they're full. There's at least two lawyers here, and one who would never be a lawyer. <laughs> You've been pretty good at making some arguments before. So, uh, 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 Tom Griscom, let me let me ask you what what is what is the argument right now as you understand it for what seems to be a a pretty widespread national, if not agreement, then perhaps consensus that four to five weeks of Quarantine and social isolation is enough, and it's time for something else because that seems to be happening all over the country now. It does. Uh, and Tom, I, I had I thought about this question earlier today, and what you hope is when something like this is over, we spend some time, like we used to do after a presidential election, to figure out how did it end up the way it did and what could we have done better. Mm. And I went back and started thinking about some of the things that have been said or not said, reading some of the data that's out there. And it is so, in my mind, mixed up. And trying to figure out what do the numbers really say? What do they not say? You know, what really has gone on in uh, Europe? What happened really in China? And I hope there's some time spent saying, you know, all of us, the collective all, probably could have done something better if maybe we'd called a short time out and thought about how are we keeping people prized of what's going on? When you see numbers that say, well, they told us all these people are going to die. The number doesn't look like it happened. So we've been doing the right things. It's time to go back, start going back. And then you worry because you're not sure that that's correct. And you keep searching. I do. 
what are the real numbers? How do we really figure it out? I look, I remember the pictures a couple of weeks ago of Jacksonville, Florida Beach. And boy, mm -hmm. they got roasted. I really had to look hard to see the Newport Beach photo from last weekend in California, mm -hmm. which was more crowded than Jacksonville. And in Newport Beach, there was no order saying go back. But the temperatures were up in the 90s. In Jacksonville, there was. And I just think there's so many things at odd here and trying to sort through and figure out what, you know, what, what really is going on. At what point do you, you know, at some point things are going to start coming back. How do we get there? And I, I, I mean, I'm, I don't know the answer. You've got the question. But uh, I, I just think we started seeing numbers and things that were coming out of other countries and say, I don't think we hit the number we supposedly were being told we were going to hit right or wrong. And then all of a sudden it started, you know, it started, you know, sort of feeling like it was coming unglued around the edges. And now you've got, you know, states, you know, you got Colorado, you got Minnesota. Uh, I mean, you have Cuomo now talking about a plan. I mean, it's become, you know, where we're heading and you want to step back and figure out how do we put the numbers back into the conversation? I don't know. Let me try. Um, Swing away. I, I, I don't think, I think there's a lot of stuff that we don't know, but I think there's some things that we do know. I think that fundamentally, this crisis was mishandled at the national level and was mishandled for weeks. I think as a result of that, you saw, in some respects, the worst of federalism at work where you had 50 different solutions to, to a national problem. I think some places probably got it closer to right, right being defined by limiting avoidable deaths as much as possible, and some places didn't get it as right. I continue to look back to see what California did, particularly what some of the Bay Area places did relatively early on. I think we're now at a point where there's almost this false debate going on between opening and reopening and not reopening, which isn't the real debate. I think there is a recognition across the board on the need to reopen. But the answer differs by looking at the data in different ways. I think there are places that have plans. I actually think the Nashville plan is one of the best plans that I've seen across the entire country. 26 pages long. Right. With lots of metrics, with clarity as to what those metrics are and how those metrics are going to drive different decisions as we go forward. I think the troubling factor is that there are some states and some local governments that are moving toward reopening with no plan with literally a wing and a prayer in some respects. It's uh, with no rules, with no metrics, with no anything, and without any, any real clarity. And I think we're seeing this again in this sort of 
perverse uh, version of American federalism where it depends on what state you're in, it depends on what county you're in, it depends on uh, what the availability of tests are, and there's still no national strategy around any of this. So I think some of it's clear, but I think some of it isn't as clear, and I think it's because we've seen a continued failure on the part of the federal government. And I, David, you're right. But here, let me let me give an example of what I was talking about. So there's this this buildup that we need Navy hospital ships sitting out the coast in California and definitely in New York City. I mean, this fanfare. I mean, it was charged every day. And there's a story of the weekend that says in New York City, the ship's going back to Norfolk. And at the height of all this, it had 188 people that were on the ship. Right. Some and none of them, of them had COVID-19 no, because of the decision of the, of the federal government. No, some of them did. They changed that. By they accident. Were, yeah, right. I understand, but I'm just saying they, it got changed because they decided you had all to be here for it, anticipating this overwhelming response. And my point earlier was, uh, somehow we need to step back and figure out how did we all set this expectation of dire consequences? And then when you start tracking some of this, say, where was it? Did so, we, I mean, I don't know the answer. I'm just saying if I was sitting here driving as a communication person, I would lay out these are the things that we need to think through and we need to come back and we need to share with the American public, all of them. This is where we started. This is the numbers we looked at. This is where we were measuring. This is, I mean, whatever. But I think there are, I do believe there are question marks there for people saying we were scared to death. And I still think people are. And I still think as things open up that you're going to find a lot of people now saying I'm going to wait, which I think is fine. I think it's appropriate. But we've got to also have a plan to get people saying it is time and it is okay to go back. I mean, I look at hospitals, hospitals with people who have serious illnesses and they won't go because they're afraid they're going to get, you know, the coronavirus and those right, people right. need to go. And so that's the part to me that we got to scratch our head and say, boy, we, you know, I, I, I don't know how it got all out of kilter. Is my well, I would say a couple of things. First of all, uh, you know, I don't know that anybody should be celebrating the fact that only 50,000 people have died. Right. So I think this was, this crisis was real and serious and significant. And we're still in the middle of it. And we don't know what the final numbers are going to be. And we don't know whether there's going to be a second wave or a third wave. Second of all, I couldn't agree more on the need to look back and see how we got here. But I'd like to look back completely and see how we were so ill prepared for going into this crisis. I think the 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 speakers moved to create a special com uh, congressional committee to look at this as the right one, not not just to hold people accountable for failure and not just to honor those people who did do the right thing, but because this is not an issue that's going to go away in the next two weeks, three weeks, three months, four months. This is an issue that's going to be with us really until there is a vaccine so that we, we get past this public health crisis and we know 
We know that, unfortunately, this is probably not the first threat of a pandemic that we're going to face. So I hope that there are lessons to learn on the communications end. But I also hope that there are lessons to learn on the public policy, particularly on the public health end. And you're right. Let me, Tom, let me. I I agree with you too, David. But at some point, it cannot just be Nancy Pelosi saying, let's do this. Because one of the issues, as we all know, is this thing is so politicized for whatever reasons, and there's plenty of them, we got to figure out that there's enough people on the other side of this, on the other party, which is the Republican, that says, yes, we need to come together and have a joint congressional group committee put together that looks at and tries to come back and report back the country. Because for right now, if it's just Nancy Pelosi driving out of the House, uh, we know exactly where it's going to end up. It's going to just continue this political uh, diatribe that's going on right now. So I'd love to see the equivalence of Governor DeWine in Ohio and Governor Hogan in Maryland come forward in the Senate or even former Majority Leader Frist, who's come forward with a lot of thoughtful commentary as a Republican about what's going on. But it's awfully hard to see that happening when you've got the Majority Leader of the U.S. Senate who's articulated policy about what to do with uh, all of those local governments like the ones that we were talking about who are dealing who are dealing with, yes, the issue of loss of minor league baseball, but the loss of billions of dollars collectively in revenue. And the majority leader of the U.S. Senate's answer is, well, maybe we should make it easier for states to go bankrupt. That is a hometown deal right there. That's all that is. I want to, there are two things about this that are interesting to me. One is, as a matter of science um, and of policy, perhaps, the death rates in the European countries that we were watching as this was building in the United States, Italy, Spain, especially, France also, were significantly higher, are significantly higher so far than the death rates in the United States. It would be good to know why that is, because one of the things that that I do think was important at the beginning of this was the shockingly high numbers of deaths in those countries as a result of the virus. Um, we know that the by DNA tracing now that the same strain of the virus that moved through Europe arrived in New York City. And frankly, the virus that arrived in New York City seems to have been of this particularly virulent strain. There does not seem to be the same death rates in many other communities around uh, the country. Not all. Detroit, certainly Chicago, Miami, all hard hit. But that is is an interesting point, I think, and a question as a matter of science. Secondly, I think, to Tom's very good question about how did this all happen Um, One of the things we know that always gets you in trouble, whether you are the president of the United States facing a pandemic or whether you are a nine-year-old who has just thrown a baseball through the neighbor's window, is if you continue to insist, no, I didn't. I don't know how that baseball got through that window. No, there's nothing here. Nothing to see here. No, No broken glass 
No surprising sound when that ball hit. And besides, who threw a ball anyway? We weren't playing baseball at all. My mom would not let me hit in my backyard for fear of breaking a window. I have thought about broken windows in baseball my entire life. And I think perhaps it's because she knew I would be ill-equipped to answer that question, what just happened to my dining room window with this baseball? And, and so the problem isn't a lack of planning. The federal government's been planning for pandemics for the better part of the last decade. The problem isn't a lack of staffing. The federal government had plenty of people, dedicated experts to this purpose. And so frankly, have a lot of universities and not-for-profits, um, uh, the world's preeminent expert on infectious disease. Dr. Anthony Fauci has been at the elbow of the president of the United States virtually since this began. I think the problem is not lack of expertise. And I think one of the challenges of this moment for us is going to be the ability to actually have a conversation with each other that does not begin or end with, well, that's what you always say, or that is always your answer. Because if half the country or 40% or whatever the number is of the country believes that this thing was cooked up by somebody in order to beat someone in an election, well, then we st we're going to really struggle to get to all of those noble answers that we, we need or we want. Or likewise, if half the country believes that um, we don't need to know the answers to these questions, all we need to do is get back to X or get back to Y. One of the things I want to do at our next show is I want to talk about what's next, because I think this event the economic shockwaves, the healthcare issues, the nature of the disease are going to dramatically affect the way we do politics in the future. Futurists have already begun to think about this, and some are saying, well, this will accelerate the, the rise of nationalism in China and the United States and Russia, and nations will, in fact, pull away from each other, not grow closer. Some say, well, it could actually work the other way. This could be the rise of a new kind of politics. Others just say, well, does this finally get X beat or is this finally the nail in Y's political coffin? I don't know, but I think you guys do. And I think between the three of us, we can, we can take a swing at this. I want to just land on one more important thing before we go. Tom Griscom is a matter of communication strategy. At the beginning of this crisis, the the president of the United States was traveling around the country, uh, speaking at rallies as as is his preference and see, as seems to work very well for him as a means of holding his base together. At some point, that became uh, ill-advised because of the fear of the spread of the virus in those large gatherings. For the same reason we don't have baseball, the same reason we uh, did the National Football League draft on uh, television this year instead of in a big location. Then the president shifted to uh, briefings personally in the White House. No more task force, no more uh, Vice President Pence. It was the president of the United States. Sometimes those briefings went two and a half hours. Friday, after the disinfectant UV light business, the call appears to be no more briefings for a while. There uh, was not a briefing on Friday. I think not a briefing today. 
The question is, what is the right way to message this going forward? How does how does a president, a governor, a mayor talk about this in a way that is credible and brings people together if those two things can be done? That's that that is a real challenge. I read a story over the weekend about because I I asked this question, by the way, for our 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 first time casual listeners of Tom Griscom, because he's actually had to do this in the White House, in a White House, which I think, if you'll permit me fair to say, uh, had uh, lost an awful lot of confidence among the American people for whether it knew how to do those things. So uh, now, yeah, you go. Fair statement. How do you keep this president uh, engaged, as you appropriately said, was in the big arenas and the big forums and people there, and he and he would talk for you know an hour or so, and all of a sudden that ended. You couldn't travel, you couldn't bring people together, and I can imagine knowing that that was his vehicle of him in that White House, not able to get out. Not able to have that, you know, type of what I, I'm going to call it an emotional drive for him because, you know, here he was and he'd have all these cheering people with their signs and all this. It just ends. I, and, and you probably saw the story where he's going to speak to the West Point graduates. They're going to bring them all back. Right. I think it's the mid part of June. Yes. And and I think that. Tom is not because Mike Pence went out and talked to the Air Force Academy graduates. I think it's trying to figure out how do you put this president back in the forums that keep him going and 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 trying to manage you know that part of of him and his makeup and personality. Uh, I just I mean if it you know it's great to look back. I mean I know to your point coming of the Rand Contra that we, you know, we had to carefully manage this and try to work it. And there were selective times when President Reagan was available and there were times where he wasn't. But when you become the spokesman in chief on this issue, which is what President Trump became, then you are you know, open to any and all type questions, whether they're scientific, whether they are data related or political and policy. And I, I, I kept waiting for why, why is this going on? Why has this become the daily thing? And you got to figure whoever worked on this, tried to put together, was ha trying to fill that void of what makes this president go. And that is the, loud, the, the, the large crowd, or at least try, or being seen as driving the agenda and this walked into a situation where, yeah, it, they were political, but there was a lot of substance to this. And so a lot of the, uh, the hubris that comes in political uh, uh, venues that we know, regardless of person or, or party, doesn't work when you're sitting here with something like coronavirus, where people are hanging on the very words to figure out, can I go back to work? Can I support my family? What do I need to do to make sure I'm not getting sick? Or if I do, what do I go? Very different type setup. And as I said, it's always great to be sitting out here 
and throw the dart uh, at somebody who is in this position dealing with something that they probably never expected. That's sort of what's bothered me. Some of the the, the, the things have been thrown at mayors and others because you'd like to stop for a minute and say, yes, yeah, a disruption, but ask yourself, what would you do? Right. How would you react? And long before the thing happened last Friday, there were just times where you scratch your head and say, you know, there, there's, you know, I don't sure, I'm not sure this is what the country is looking for. A day or two a week, okay. But boy, they're looking for that person that David has referenced earlier in this conversation who can help me understand a little bit more from a health standpoint. Uh, what's this all about? So, so let me make a quick point as, as we come to a close. I agree with everything that Tom Grissom said, and I agree with everything that he said in the context of a normal politician or a normal president. As somebody who has watched Donald Trump for four decades, from when he was an up-and-coming young developer in New York until now, this is a guy who would call tabloids in New York to get himself in the newspaper. This is a guy who would pretend to be somebody else to get a story in the local news in New York about himself. What has characterized the Trump presidency as unique, among many things that have characterized it as unique, is the ever presence of Donald Trump as the most important story of the day. Any mention in the news is a good mention in the news, no matter what it is. And what has finally overtaken that strategy uh, although half the country wasn't buying it for most of the time anyway. But what has overtaken it is the fact that there are more than 50,000 people dead as, right now as a result of, of this pandemic. And Donald Trump trying to be the story of the day, even for those people to whom it was somewhat appealing, isn't as appealing right now. So I think that Tom articulates absolutely the right frame of mind for most people who would be president, have ever been president, have ever served as first selectment in terms of a political communication strategy. But it doesn't work for Donald Trump because of his personality. I would just say, I think all of us have worked for candidates, all of us have worked for elected officials. And and what is true with all of them is you first and foremost have to manage the candidate or the elected official. Then you have to manage everything else. But if the elected official does not want to be managed, if the candidate does not want to be managed, well, then you're going to be unsuccessful. Um, the current occupant of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue is is unlike perhaps any other president we've had he is not unlike anybody else we've had run for office in that sense um, uh, we've all worked with those folks they are all out there at all levels i will just say as we uh, wrap this up the great gb trudeau in 1971 1971 drew a strip of mike doonesbury uh, and his buddy bd are contemplating what to do that night as they stroll the grounds of Harvard Yard and 
Doonesbury says, hey, BD, John Kerry of the Vietnam Vets is speaking at the auditorium. Want to go? And a voice from off screen says, you better. If you care about this country at all, you better go listen to that John Kerry fellow. He speaks with a rare eloquence and astonishing conviction. If you see no one else this year, you must see John Kerry. The frame empties and BD says, who is that? Doonesbury says, John Kerry. Donald Trump is unique, uh, but uh, but he is he is not alone, if that makes any sense. We're going to figure out next week what to do about that and who knows what evidence the batters will have around the cage to toss that around. It's a thrill being with you. We wish we were watching baseball with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for now, it's Tom Griscom and David Eichenthal, Tom Lee, our producer, Kerry Hayes, Uh, wishing you the best of seventh inning stretches. See you later, everybody.